0: From the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. My name is John Shack. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life looks at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Today's topic is persecution, persecution of Christians. This is from Southern Baptist minister Paul Washer.
1: The church in America is going to suffer so terribly. And we laugh now, but they will come after us and they will come after our children. They will close the net around us while we are playing soccer mom and soccer dad. While we are arguing over so many little things and mesmerized by so many trinkets, the net even now is closing around you and your children and your grandchildren and it does not cause you to fear. You will be isolated from society as has already happened. Anyone who tries to run for office who actually believes the Bible will be considered a lunatic until finally we are silenced. We will be called things that were not and persecuted, not for being followers of Christ, but for being radical fundamentalists who do not know the true way of Christ, which, of course, is love and tolerance. You'll go down as the greatest bigots and haters of mankind in history. They've already come after your children, and for most of you, they got them. They got them through the public schools and indoctrination and the university and indoctrination. And then you wonder why your children come out not serving the Lord. It's because you fed them right into the devil's mouth. So little by little the net is closing around and then it's not little by little. Look how fast things are going downhill just in a matter of weeks. Matter of weeks. But at the same time, know this. Persecution is always meant for evil, but God always means it for good. And is it not better to suffer in this life to have an extra weight of glory
0: in heaven? That was Southern Baptist minister Paul Washer speaking in 2010 about persecution of Christians. He isn't the only one to use the persecution language. Politicians do as well. This was former presidential candidate Rick Santorum. This is not a political war at all. This is not a cultural war at all.
1: This is a spiritual war. And the yeah. father of lies has his sights on what you would think the father of lies Satan would have his sights on. A good, decent, powerful, influential country, the United States of America. The place where he was, in my mind, the most successful and first, first successful was in academia. He oh, understood yeah. pride of smart people. He attacked mm-hmm. them at their weakest, that they were, in fact smarter than everybody else and could come up with something new and different, pursue new truths, deny the existence of truth, play with it because we're smart. And so academia a long time ago fell.
0: Rick Santorum speaking about Satan's work. Speaking on the floor of the House of Representatives, Representative from Texas, Ted Poe. Speaker, We hear about religious persecution throughout the third world, but there's an anti-religious movement right here in the United States. The Catholic church is being persecuted by this government. Mr. Speaker, religious principles are not negotiable. They are not to be subject to bullying by any government, especially ours. No government has the legal or moral right to target any religion and make them violate their religious conscience. Regardless of where Americans stand on the issues of contraception, sterilization, or the abortion pill, it should be alarming for those who believe the government should not punish religions or substitute a religious doctrine for citizens. The government should stay out of the business of
2: persecuting religions.
0: Representative Ted Poe of Texas. Are Christians persecuted in the United States? Where did this language of persecution come from? Why is it so popular and so prevalent, and why is it the metaphor that is used to discuss disagreements about politics and social issues? Is it true that Christians are persecuted? Is it true that Christians have always been persecuted? We're going to pick up that topic today. My guest is Candida Moss. She teaches New Testament and Christian Origins in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame. She has published numerous articles on various aspects of biblical and early Christian literature, history, and thought. Her latest book is The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented the Story of Martyrdom. And she's with me via Skype from her office in South Bend, Indiana, to talk about her book. Welcome, Dr. Moss, to Religion for Life.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So uh, tell me, how did you happen to write this book, The Myth of Persecution?
2: Well, I had been working on martyrdom for over a decade and had, as you noted, written these other books. And I came to this topic because I teach here at Notre Dame, and I heard a lot of students and faculty and... Um, Catholic bishops commenting on persecution in modern America. And I was sort of surprised by that. And when they talked about persecution, they said, you know, we're being persecuted just like we were in the early church. And I thought to myself, well, we weren't that persecuted in the early church. We really weren't. And so I sort of, I wanted to write this book sort of retelling the history of persecution in the early church as scholars know it already, and sort of calling into question the way that um, people of faith use persecution language today. And
0: so, what is your definition of persecution, and and what is a martyr?
2: Right. Well, my my definition of persecution is that it's something deliberate. It's when you have a group or a government targeting another group, um, in this case for their religious beliefs, for being Christian. And I distinguish that from prosecution, which is when um, someone is punished for breaking a law. And I think that we all agree with this. So you couldn't kill someone and say that you had heard a voice from God and were acting in accordance with your religious beliefs. You would go to prison for that. We would um, punish you under law. Now, there is some, this was some sort of blurriness between prosecution and persecution. But my basic premise is that um, persecution is deliberate um, and wrong, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, a martyr is generally held to be someone who dies as a res- result of their um, religious beliefs. Um, now, this hasn't always been the case. Sometimes people have been venerated as martyrs when they were murder victims, or when they haven't actually died. But generally, that's what most people say. A martyr is someone who dies as a result of their religious beliefs, and they could have had a choice not to die if they had been willing to abandon those beliefs.
0: You think of, in fact, you mentioned in the book of Martin Luther King as kind of a, a fuzzy figure in this sense. He was, uh, of course, he certainly was was murdered, um, but he wouldn't have been murdered had he not been active for civil rights. But that really isn't persecution from a religious perspective.
2: Right, no. I don't, you don't always have to be persecuted to be a martyr. I think Martin Luther King is an interesting case of this. He was murdered. It seems that he knew that this would happen to him if he had continued to follow his conscience and had continued to act out of his sincere religious beliefs. But sort of the government wasn't out to get him. It was someone who murdered him. And I think it's important to dislocate martyrdom, which a lot of people think... Um, is sort of courageous and honorable, and we should admire martyrs, and I would agree with that, from persecution. You don't always have to have people dying for there to be persecution, and you don't have to have persecution for people to end up as martyrs.
0: Now, as I understand you in your book, uh, the myth is that Christians uh, have, have always been persecuted just because they're Christians, and it's a, and it's a supernatural uh, persecution uh, by Satan. So whether it's the Romans or the Muslims or the feminists or the secular humanists, they're persecuting the faith on behalf of satanic powers, and the faithful martyr then submits uh, to this persecution and doesn't deny the faith. And, and you say this has this all been invented, that really this was never historically... Um, Uh, an aspect of Christian history.
2: Right. Well, um, yeah, that's sort of pretty much it. I would say Christians have been persecuted. There were brief periods in the early church when they were persecuted. And there are places in the world today where they are persecuted. Um, I do think that the idea that all of these instances of persecution can be tied to basically this cosmic battle between good and evil, God versus Satan, and that ultimately— people who are disagreeing with or attacking Christians are in league with Satan, I do think that that idea, which, you know, it has a biblical basis, um, I think it's very dangerous. Once um, persecution is tied to Satan and to this sort of cosmic battle between good and evil, God versus Satan, the stakes are suddenly very high. And I think there's something dangerous here sometimes the people that we disagree with, um, have legitimate concerns. Sometimes, um, They have sincerely held beliefs that might be inaccurate, and I think we need to be attentive to those concerns. But once we introduce Satan, um, things can get a little dangerous because no one thinks that you should negotiate with Satan or collude with Satan or sort of um, respect the human rights of demons. So I think that once we start talking about persecution on this sort of grand trans-historical scale, that Christians have always been attacked by the devil, um, then we suddenly open the door to sort of um, all kinds of sort of violence against others, and we basically cut off any kind of dialogue with those with whom we disagree
0: yeah i what i hear you saying is that the language of persecution is used too freely and too lightly there are there are people in the world who are persecuted and targeted for abuse and violence and not all are christians by any means uh, but this myth of persecution might actually distract us uh from real acts of injustice
2: yeah that's right i think that once we start once we once we start using the language of persecution to describe really disagreements minor events um then um, we sort of too easily conflate real persecution with that. And and that sort of utterly distracts us from situations of real violence that demand our attention as human beings. And um, we, we sort of lose all kind of historical perspective and stop trying to really sort of... Um, sort of combat um, issues of social justice and violence around the world, because we're preoccupied with people disagreeing with us here in sort of free Western countries.
0: My guest is Candida Moss. She is the author of The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented the Story of Martyrdom. She teaches New Testament and Christian Origins at the University of Notre Dame. And, and one of the ways in which uh, you've been bringing this issue out is to look at it historically. For example, the apostles um, uh, and the legends of, of their demise. And you never really have stories of the apostles just sitting down at the negotiating table reasoning it out with the Romans. They've all, all the legends for them have been of a violent death um but you're suggesting that that necessarily that is all part of a a christian story not as as less than historical accuracy
2: right and, and i'm not suggesting that at some point christians sat in a darkened room and came up with some grand conspiracy um i think a lot of it happens sort of ad hoc And we're talking about legends that developed over time. But if we take, say, the apostles, a lot of the modern language of persecution is grounded in the understanding that Christians have always been under attack. And that idea comes from the early church. So if you wonder about this language in the present, this is where it comes from. And when it comes to the apostles, I'm pretty sure that the apostles died. They probably died violently. But the legends about their deaths, from where we get the understanding that they were sort of innocent victims who were sought out and hunted down by the Romans, those legends come from much later, um, much longer, not sort of at the time of their death, um, but maybe as long as 100 years later. And they're written in the style of fiction. So whoever wrote down the stories wasn't even trying to write sort of Um, history as people in the ancient world understood it. They were trying to write these sort of inspirational stories that would inspire people to imitate the martyrs. And I guess what I argue in my book is when you look at the evidence, we don't really know what happened to the apostles. And I think that we can believe that they died as martyrs, but we can't say that the Romans were persecuting them, that they were out to get them. When we look at what the apostles said, It sounds very revolutionary, and um, we have to try and understand what the Romans would have been thinking if and when they sentenced the apostles to die. We have to try and understand that, particularly if we're trying to eradicate persecution in general. We just don't have enough evidence to talk about persecution. We just don't know what happened to the apostles. Well, um,
0: what was the attitude then of of the Romans to these early Christians? Some, I suppose were were in fact uh, what throned the lions, I guess, but what what did the Romans think?
2: Yeah, it happened very rarely, but um when it initially, for say the first two hundred years, the Romans didn't really understand. Um, that, that Christians existed, or what sort of their claims were. Everyone else would do these very simple things like swear oaths of allegiance to the Roman Empire. And that was sort of a sign of political solidarity and social unity. So the Romans didn't understand why would the Christians not do this? And when the Christians appeared in courtrooms, they would say things like they couldn't do this because they had their own emperor, Christ, and that he would be returning um, with angels and troops to sort of take over and have a whole new empire and reign on earth. And you can imagine Mm. to Roman authorities that that sounds like subversion. You're talking about a new emperor. You're talking about war. You're talking about a new empire that's going to overthrow the current one. And so to the Roman authorities, they sound like revolutionaries. And the Romans did execute people for revolution. They executed people for adultery. So you can imagine how they felt about treason.
0: So they were really, it was really from the Roman perspective, uh, political expediency, not uh, religious persecution because they were Christian.
2: That's right. Um, They really weren't interested in things like baptism or hymns or the Trinity. They were executing them for treason as revolutionaries. And the Christians didn't help themselves out by trying to explain why they couldn't do what the Romans asked them to do. The Romans didn't even think that the Christians were a real religion. They described them as a superstitio or a superstition. But a superstition in the ancient world was sort of A contagious form of madness. And so the Romans were very concerned that this sort of subversive, sort of contagious madness would spread to others. And that they would find that lots of people would be undermining the Roman Empire by refusing to display political allegiance to the emperor.
0: Now, would you say that this myth is embedded within the New Testament itself? I mean, we have Jesus, of course, himself executed on a Roman cross, um, mm-hmm. but he was executed from the Roman perspective, again, because he was a troublemaker. Uh, they executed thousands of people, as you mentioned, but it, Christians turned his death into something else. Why is that?
2: Right. Um, you know, the death of Jesus is this incredibly powerful moment that sort of changes history for Christians and sort of changes the way people think about suffering prior to the death of Jesus if you were persecuted that was a sign that your God had abandoned you or was powerless or was punishing you and the death of Jesus changes that now um, suffering innocently is sort of a badge of honor and that's what we see today in the language of persecution Um, now I think it's possible that you can have historical events like this um, you know, the Romans execute him as a troublemaker that also have, you know, for people of faith, great theological significance. But that doesn't mean that the Romans were acting from sort of malicious intent to persecute anyone. And um, I think we can have that today, too. Things are sometimes more complicated than just sort of black and white, good versus evil stuff. And this idea is embedded in the New Testament. But, you um, When we have, say, Jesus in the New Testament predicting the persecution of his followers, we have to look at what he's saying and whether or not that pans out. So um, Jesus predicts that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, will sort of die as martyrs like him. And, you know, John, the son of Zebedee, is the only apostle not to have died as a martyr. Um, So I think we have to take some of these prophecies and ask ourselves, are these metaphors? um, Did they not, did he not mean it literally? I think that Christians have to sort of um, consider the possibility that when persecution is predicted in the New Testament, that it's not literal persecution that it's something else, that it's metaphorical, um, that it's a call to embrace a certain way of life, but it's not necessarily a prediction about the situation Christians will find themselves in for the rest of time.
0: Well, I wonder, as the New Testament developed, looking at the texts perhaps chronologically, um, from, uh, if if you look at Acts, for example, as as some scholars are saying, maybe even a second century work, that persecution kind of develops as as it moves along, as as the Christian story gets gets going, that persecution is lifted up as an ideal or martyrdom, I say, as yes, an ideal. Yes,
2: definitely. Over time, um, martyrdom becomes a huge ideal. And, you know, what I would argue is that martyrdom is a very important idea that sort of sits at the heart of Christianity, and that this idea of suffering like Jesus, it develops over time, and it's very important, and it's important even today. But at the same time, we don't have evidence for actual persecution. So just as today, people can respect martyrdom, even though very few people actually die as martyrs, at least in the U.S., um... In the um, ancient early church, you know, very few people died as martyrs, um, but they still really highly regarded this idea. And you don't need a lot of people to die to feel that you as a group are characterized as sort of suffering like Jesus. And I think it's perfectly acceptable to embrace the idea of martyrdom um, while acknowledging that historically not many people were dying.
0: Candida Moss, my guest on Religion for Life. She teaches New Testament and Christian Origins in the Department of Theology at the University of Notre Dame, and she's the author of The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented the Story of Martyrdom. And uh, one of your chapters, you talk uh, about the stories of the martyrs. Uh, How many stories of martyrs are there?
2: Well, there are thousands of stories of martyrs. Unfortunately, the vast majority of these were written centuries, sometimes even a millennium after the events that they purported to describe, from the early church, from what we would call the age of martyrs, so after the death of Jesus and before the rise of the Emperor Constantine, who sort of made the Roman Empire sort of favorable to Christians. Um, In that period, we don't have many stories. From before the first period of, um, of actual persecution, we maybe have six stories that can be dated to that period. Hmm. That's only six stories um, that are really, truly historically accurate.
0: Six out and of thousands?
2: Um, six out of the thousands that we have now, yeah. Um, people weren't forging martyrdom stories early on. They were later once okay. Christians were in power.
0: And uh, and and some of these stories are are quite uh, uh, fanciful. In fact, you even mentioned that one of the stories was really the the legend of uh, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, um, transposed into a Christian figure. Tell us a little bit about that one.
2: Yeah, that story, which is fascinating, it actually appears in um, it's alluded to in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. It was one of the most popular martyrdom stories of sort of the medieval and um, well, not medieval, but the, the early modern period. Um, the story of Saint josephat and what happened was no one conspired here this incredibly popular story sort of was translated into different languages and sort of spread and christians took it on for themselves and thought it was a christian story and it was written down by scribes and later christian historians said well hang on a minute This is obviously the story of the Buddha. And they could actually go through and look at how it had passed from language to language. But obviously, he wasn't a Christian saint. I think we can say he was very saintly, but he wasn't a Christian. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's also quite embarrassing that we have the story that obviously wasn't about Christians that wound up in sort of the canon of Catholic saints. And so... um, very sort of early on in the Reformation period, um, Catholic priests themselves started routing out the obvious forgeries, um, the sort of fanciful tales, in order to try and get back to what actually happened. And it's really, if you think about it, it can be a pious practice to try and uncover the truth and work out for yourself what really happened.
0: And these stories of, of, the, of all of them, of the... Uh stories of the martyrs and of the saints who gave themselves over to persecution, have have a sense, uh, have a positive quality to them, I suppose. One one could think that it's uh, it gives you the strength to stand up for, for example, today, civil rights. Um, but it also has a real negative quality, as you mentioned before, of dividing the world between good and evil. Do you, have you found uh, in Christian history stories of people that have... Uh, Well, but have been saints, but haven't necessarily have have had to divide the world between black and white. Is there a a way of understanding our Christian faith today, I guess I'm asking you as a theologian now, that we might uh, uh, understand our Christian faith, not necessarily, or anyone's faith, as as black and white, but as more cooperative or collaborative?
2: Um. Yeah, I think that there are. I mean, I think you're absolutely right. We can embrace these stories without adopting the sort of polarizing, divisive history that's sort of encoded in them. Mm -hmm. There are instances that, um, for example, in North Africa um, of what happened when Christians were arrested and they confessed Jesus. They were then imprisoned and there were others who didn't confess Jesus perhaps the majority of people, apostatized. And according to ancient Christian thought, those people, they had cut themselves off from God. And what's really interesting is that they can go; they could go to imprisoned Christians and ask them for forgiveness. And they believe that these imprisoned Christians who are awaiting martyrdom could actually um, grant them entrance into heaven. They could forgive them this grave sin of apostasy and I think this is really remarkable to think that people did this that you have sometimes you know ordinary people and sometimes very young teenagers who are awaiting their death who have been brutally tortured and they somehow found it in themselves to forgive these other people who had committed the sin that they themselves weren't willing to commit and to forgive them and to give them entrance into heaven I think that's an amazing model of the collaboration um, among different groups of people who can radically disagree with one another. They had the power to send these people to hell, and they didn't do it. They forgave them, and they um, talked about you know, unity and compassion. And I think that's got to be the model that we take away from these stories, not the idea that if you're not with us, you're against us and you're with Satan.
0: Yeah, or all opposition is uh, some kind of uh, uh, divine sense of fighting against evil when it really is just people who disagree with you. That's
2: right. Sometimes we sincerely disagree. And that rhetoric can go the other
0: way, too. I I think uh, the Church um, has been accused of persecuting freethinkers and heretics, but that language can be exaggerated even in that direction, or can it? Yeah,
2: Yeah, I think it can be. I do think that we need to be honest about our traditions. I wish that... um, Our causes had always been just, Mm -hmm. that we had always done the right thing. But um, the language of persecution has allowed um, Christian groups over time to preemptively commit Great acts of violence against other groups, against heretics, against members of other religious groups in the name of God. Um, Sometimes we make too much of that story, too. You know, people can um, have this very sort of conspiratorial ideal about Christians as well. But we do need to be honest about our history, acknowledge that um, we, too, in the past have done things of which we've been ashamed and try and collaborate and work together in the future.
0: And being honest about our history is the point of the book, The Myth of Persecution, How Early Christians Invented a Story of Martyrdom. My guest on Religion for Life has been Canada Moss, uh, teaching New Testament and Christian Origins at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, Dr. Moss, thank you for being with me today and for your book.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Schuck, minister at First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find information about upcoming programs, including links to podcasts, at religionforlife.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC in Emory, Virginia. Be well.
1: Be quiet! Oh, but you can't expect to wield supreme executive power just because some watery tart threw a sword at you! Shut up! Oh, but if I went round saying I was an emperor just because some moistened bint had lobbed a scimitar at me, they'd put me away! Shut up, will you? Shut up! Ah, oh, now we see the violence inherent in the system! Shut up! Oh, come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed, bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway! Did you hear that? Did you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Do you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you?